I don't want to get into it. Let's, let's get into the lesson. Uh, we've been in the, the book of Zechariah, and uh, you're probably used to the fact by now that I am taking a New Testament reading that associates to a particular place in Zechariah. Uh, we're in Zechariah 14 this, this morning, final lesson uh, in this series, as we've been given these uh, amazing pictures and prophecies of what God was going to do through Christ when Christ came. And uh, I intend to recap some of those pictures uh, in this final lesson that uh, it really is a a great picture and unfortunately a book that gets ignored because it is a difficult book with a lot of the symbols and pictures uh, that that are found in it. In fact, a, a lot of people will note that Zechariah chapter 14 is one of the hardest chapters uh, in the book. So I signed up for the crazy task of saying, let's go uh, and let, let's take it on. Um, won't be possible for me to cover every line of every detail uh, that's in this chapter and you actually get to lunch. So we're not going to be able uh, to do that. But uh, I'm hoping that this will kind of give you a blueprint and an, an overview and understanding of this chapter so that a lot of the details that we don't have time to touch on can kind of fit together better for you. And we're going to see really three big pictures. There's myriads of pictures, myriads of symbols and details uh, that are found in this final chapter. But we will on the whole kind of take three big pictures in which those other pictures fit into. And I think that will help give us a sense of what God was prophesying about the coming of Christ. A couple of things to make preparation for getting into uh, this chapter. We have noticed, especially from verse uh, chapter 12 on, that you have noted this repetition of in that day. And I have made a point to you that in chapter 12 and in chapter 13, in that day keeps referring to the time of when Christ comes and the effect of what he's going to accomplish. Like in that day, a fountain is going to be opened up that's going to be washing away sins in chapter 13. We've seen these pictures of in that day keep pointing to what's going to be accomplished when Christ arrives. That's very important in chapter 14. Even though we have chapter breaks, that doesn't mean that we now have a whole new section and a whole new idea and all of that. The prophecy keeps going and the repetition of in that day or on that day still sits here. And he's still pointing to those moments of what's going to happen. The other key thing to really get a hold of as we come into this final chapter and really has been true for the whole book of Zechariah, but it really needs to be reminded of us at this point is that this is a prophecy that is full of imagery. And it's important to not get so stuck on the details of the imagery that you miss the point of what's being communicated. Let me use an example of something easier that we did last week. For example, in chapter 13, verse 7, the prophecy was made, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You weren't supposed to read that and think, Okay, we need to go find a meadow somewhere and watch a shepherd and see if a shepherd gets cut down by a sword. And when they're cut by the sword, then all the sheep go running. You're supposed to take the big idea, get the picture. What's this image trying to show about Christ, what he's come to do and what's going to happen. So don't lose sight of that in chapter 14. Don't 
hit these details and go, oh no, I, I don't know. What, what's the big idea? What's the big picture? Because God is giving us these really big pictures to show us what he's going to accomplish through Christ. All right, enough preparation. Let's get on into our text. One of the things that we, we see as the first big picture is there is significant Exodus imagery. And though I'm going to call verses one through seven a victorious exodus that is being depicted, I believe I could probably successfully point out that the whole chapter is showing an exodus. And I will make those references along the way as we go through the chapter. But if you can have in your mind that we are getting an image of what you would think about with Moses who came to his people and led them out of slavery and how that leading that leading had gone, how he led them out through the Red Sea, parting of the Red Sea, how God accomplished a great victory. You're going to see the same things happening here using different elements. The first three verses simply start depicting a God who will fight for his people. I won't spend a lot of time here because... A lot of these chapters in Zechariah have been talking about that. Has there been seen that the people of God are in difficulty and distress and God is coming to rescue his people? The imagery that is staggering that a lot of people get stuck on is in verse 4 where it says in verse 4, On that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lie before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. And you shall flee to the valley of my mountains for the valley of the mountains shall reach Azel and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, the king of Judah. And then the Lord my God will come all his holy ones with him. Now, Here's immediately your people jump and forget what I had on the last screen. And they'll go, well, I don't, Jesus did not stand on the Mount of Olives and the mountain split in two and turned into a great valley. And since none of that happened, that's all going to happen way on down the road of two things. One, on that day, we're still pointing to the same time frame of Christ's arrival and just as I said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered did not mean go look for a shepherd standing in a meadow with the same thing here. You're supposed to capture the imagery of what's being described. And did you notice it sounds like the exodus is happening again, but rather than it being waters, notice the Mount of Olives is split in two so that it says in verse five, the people are escaping fleeing through the valley out of Jerusalem between the parted mountain. So you're getting this imagery of God is going to come and rescue and fight for his people. There's going to be another victorious exodus where the people are going to be set free. And I'm not there yet, but you'll notice even starts talking about plagues <laughs> in verses 12 through 15. And here's all the plagues that are going to happen. Well, again, you're drawing that exodus kind of imagery. When God comes and fights for his people, he's going to bring the plagues like he did in the days of the Exodus. And he's going to part the waters and set the people free so that they can be rescued. And you're seeing this image that Christ is taking on that same redemptive saving figure. When he comes, rather than standing in front of the Red Sea and setting the people free, he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives. And it's going to be this great Exodus and his people are going to be rescued and saved. 
Same idea is found even there in, in verse 6 where it speaks of this, verse 6 and verse 7, there is this unique day known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but at evening there's going to be light. That is also that kind of victory imagery that you see in the scriptures, like in the days of Joshua where the sun just stood and held so that the people of God could be victorious over the enemies. He's using the same idea here of God being victorious for his people, accomplishing a great exodus in all of that, such that you get this great image in in verse 4, that his feet are going to stand on, on the Mount of Olives. You could probably point to a couple of interesting times when you see Jesus on the Mount of Olives. But I would suggest to you perhaps the most important one is one that's easy to miss. And it's one that we've talked about earlier in the book of Zechariah, which is when Jesus ascends, he's on the Mount of Olives. And that is an important location of declaring victory and accomplishing all that has been accomplished. Jesus saying on the cross, it is finished. He raises from the dead. He teaches his disciples. They come to the Mount of Olives. And then suddenly you have Jesus going in the clouds and the disciples are just jaw dropped as they watch him go up into the clouds. And on all of that is this picture picture of a, a victory that Jesus has accomplished. He's parted the, the mountains. He has set the people free. He has taken his victory stance on the mountain and has now ascended back into heaven. And I want you to notice that the, the middle of this paragraph really reaches into that imagery. Look at verse 9. That the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name will be one. There is this image that's given to us now as as he's accomplished this exodus and brought about the victory and set his people free, that now he has inaugurated his victorious reign. And he is described there in verse 9 as now being king over all the earth, which is why that Mount of Olives ascension scene is so important. Because Jesus rises from the dead, gives his final instructions, and ascends into heaven and takes his seat at the right hand of God. You might remember that's exactly how Daniel predicted it was going to take place in Daniel 7 and verse 13. I saw in the night visions, behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Now watch what happens When the Son of Man goes in the clouds and is presented to the Ancient of Days, he was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Here is Daniel saying, when he goes in the clouds, here's what's happening. He is taking rule and authority. He's taking his rightful place. And if that was too complicated, let's just use Jesus' words. What did he say after he rose from the dead? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. And then what does he do? Ascends from the Mount of Olives. The book of Zechariah is trying to show us this victorious reign. He leads his people out in this great exodus, setting them free, establishes his kingship, establishes his rule. 
And notice what's going to happen with that in verse 8. On that day, living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. So again, notice the picture, and I hope that by observing a couple of things here, one, you can't read that and go, man, it's just going to flood. There's just going to be water all over symbolism, imagery. Notice the idea of living waters flowing from Jerusalem, flowing in both directions. It's going to flow east and it's going to flow west, which is a picture that nobody's excluded. The water's not only flowing to Israel. The water's not flowing only into one nation. It's covering the earth. It goes in both directions. Everyone is going to have access to the living waters. And notice the same thing on that day. This on that day when Christ comes, living waters for all people. Notice the rest of verse 8 where it says there, it's going to continue in summer as in winter. Now I've learned living in Florida, we have things backward here. (laughs) Our wet season is the summer and the dry season is the winter, which is unlike anybody else in in the country. But here, wet season, and it doesn't rain hardly at all in the winter. So when he says it's going to flow summer and winter, it's not going to diminish at all. These living waters, as they flow east and west to all people, there's not going to be a season where you go, there's no living waters. You know, it must be January in Florida. There's no water. We're all dried. Our grass is all dying. It's going to flow constantly to all peoples at all times without diminishing. This is why I had the reading from John 7. Because Jesus comes on the scene on the last day of the feast. And I want you to notice what he says. If anyone's thirsty, come to me. This is what Zachariah is talking about. Zechariah is picturing there's a day when Christ comes and living water is going to flow in all directions and it's not going to be diminished and everyone is going to have access and he's going to establish his rule and kingship and set the people free through a great exodus and he's going to have power over nations and peoples. And when Jesus stands up and says these words, he's reaching to those pictures and he's saying that moment has come. If you want the living waters, if you want the exodus, if you want to be set free, if you want the hope in God, if you want to be part of his kingdom and enjoy his rule, come to me and drink and I will give you rivers of living waters. Just as the scriptures say that rivers of living waters will flow out of the person's heart. By the way, while we're here, notice verse 39 has this little explanation. That hadn't happened yet. Now, he said this about the spirit whom those who believe are about to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given. Why? Because Jesus had not been yet glorified. Now, if you say the gospel of John, what's Jesus' glorification? The cross. All throughout the gospel of John, Jesus is talking about, it's not my time. I'm going to be glorified. It's going to be the cross, the resurrection, the ascension. He's even pointing to the same markers That the book of Zechariah is pointing to. That this victorious reign is going to happen. Now, I want us to think about why this is so important. Sometimes we can get lost 
in the power of the Old Testament prophets talking about there's going to be a kingdom and a king and Jesus is that king and he's putting all the enemies under his feet and he's ruling with all authority. And we can be caught up in that. And I think that's good to catch that imagery and picture and see the power of our Lord. But understand why that is such an important picture. The reason why the scriptures, Old and New Testament, are constantly giving us that image is to show us that everything and everyone that stands against God and his people have been conquered. That you are seeing a victorious Christ. That when he is able to raise from the dead, he's saying, I even have power over death. Death can't even win over you. There is no chance that you will succumb to anyone or any powers or anything. I am showing you in the cross and in the resurrection and in the ascension. I have power over sin. I have power over Satan. I have power over death. I have power over everything. None can win against me. And if they can't win against me, there is nothing that can win against you. The image of Jesus being this victorious king is to say there's nothing that can keep you from enjoying life with him. The waters are flowing all directions, undiminished. They're not turning into a trickle and now they're gone. The cross has accomplished this great victory so that Christ's authority over everything means there is not a single thing that can keep you from him. That's the power of him being king. It is amazing just to think of him as king and ruler and sovereign over heaven and earth and all that. That's great and powerful. But think about the application. That means he has power over everything that could possibly stop you from coming to him. Isn't that why the Apostle Paul just exclaims, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Sword? No. Famine? No. Death? No. Sin? No. No, 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 no. Whatever you can conjure, the answer is no. He has all reign, all authority. He has accomplished the victory. He has accomplished the exodus. And he has set us free. This is the beauty of the imagery that is given to us here. And what I want to do just for a second is just kind of pull together what these final chapters have done. In really teaching us the message of what the cross was accomplishing. From chapter 9 through now chapter 14. We have seen God making these statements. Jesus has been made both Lord and Christ so that he could be your immovable rock that you run to so that he could make you like David, reversing your condition from lowly to exalted with him, that he has made Jesus both Lord and Christ so that he can lead you in the wilderness just as God led his people in the wilderness that he has made Jesus both Lord and Christ so that when we looked upon him whom we have pierced 
We would be moved with repentant sorrow and desire to seek his mercy and his grace. God made Jesus both Lord and Christ so that a fountain could be opened up, a fountain of forgiveness, chapter 13, that would be poured out for you, that would wash away your sins. He did this so that your idols would be removed from your heart, that you would be free from the worthless shepherds who so often lead you away from the good shepherd who's trying to bring you to life. He made Jesus both Lord and Christ so that rather than you being destroyed, By the trials of life, you would be refined by them. He made Jesus both Lord and Christ so that when you call, God would answer. That God would be able to say to you, you are my people. And that we would be able to respond, you are my God. This is what Zechariah has been saying, I just took a bunch of the pictures that we have covered for the past three weeks and dumped them into a paragraph and said, all of this has been pointing to what God would accomplish on the cross. And then chapter 14, now Jesus takes his stand on the Mount of Olives, gives his final directions and ascends and takes his rightful place on the throne. And says, all authority has been given to me. I'm ruling over heaven and earth. All the obstacles are removed so that you can come to me. Hold all of that in your mind. And after God has spent chapter after chapter after chapter in Zechariah saying, here's what I've come to do for you. Here's the impact of the cross. Here's how the cross changes everything. What would you guess the final picture for the book of Zechariah is going to be? Look at verse 16. And everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem. By the way, notice reversal right there. Everyone who's come against are now coming to God shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. All of these pictures have been given so that in this grand finale, what you have is now everybody wants to worship. When you are so amazed by what God has accomplished by his son in the cross, What it's supposed to do is generate a grand desire to worship. In fact, I think the image of verse 16 is amazing where it talks about they're going to keep the Feast of Booths. Now you read that and go, what? We're going to keep the Feast of Booths. Why is that? Why the Feast of Booths of all things? Two things. One, the Feast of Booths was all about Thanksgiving. It was a time for seven days to be thankful For how God had brought a great harvest and had provided for his people. There is a thanksgiving component in looking at how God has provided and given what the people needed to sustain them for another year. The second component of the Feast of Booths was, and you remember how you were enslaved and God brought you out with a mighty hand. And during the time of your wilderness, you lived in tents in booths until you came into the promised land 
This is the same idea that's being drawn out here is that God is saying, I am going to bring you out. I'm going to have this grand exodus. I'm going to have this enthronement. And what it's supposed to ultimately do is draw us to thanksgiving, draw us to desire to worship. Friends, I I really want to sit on this idea for the last few minutes of, of the lesson this morning is that what the whole intent of the cross is that people would see all that God has done. And that's going to cause people to want to come to him and worship him. And if you hear nothing else, I want you to please hear this. This is what worship is all about. I think when I grew up as a kid, I heard an awful lot about from preachers and teachers. You have to go to church. You're supposed to go to church. Hebrews 10, 25 says Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together. So you better get up and get in the building. Because that's what God wants. Is a bunch of people who are guilted into showing up into a building who really don't want to be there and can't wait for it to all to end. That's what he was looking for. This is his great desire. Is a bunch of people who couldn't care less. But at least they're in the building for an hour. Thank you, Jesus, that we now have had that happen. Is that really what it's all about? That's not the picture. And so often we present it that way. You have to go to church. You have to worship. So let's clock in three songs, get two prayers, speed the Lord's Supper along, get him to be 30 minutes or less if we can ever get him to be quiet, and let's get out of here and get to lunch. We got things to do, people to see, places to go. Because that's what God wanted was out of the 168 hours you have in a week, give him one begrudging one. He's thrilled. Why did we ever suggest that that's what worship looked like? Get here, time clock it, 11.30, let's go. See you next week. What you are seeing here is a people who want to come to worship because of everything that God has done. That he has laid out for five straight chapters. And I read for a couple minutes all of the images of here's what was accomplished at the cross. And the final picture is everyone's going to want to come worship. Everyone's going to want to be there. When people see what God has accomplished in the cross, they're going to want to be there. They're not going to sit there and go, I'd rather watch Netflix. They're going to go, look at what God has done for me. Who cares about the stuff of this world? Who cares? What else should I be doing? What else would I want to do with my time? It's astounding that we only try to put together three, maybe four hours out of 168. God wants hearts. God wants people to be so bowled over by all that the cross achieved that they want to be here no matter what. 
And telling people they have to is a waste of time. And if you don't want to be here, you're wasting your time. Ironically, the final one, Malachi, you know what he's going to say in there? (laughs) One of them he's going to say is, I'm weary of your worship. Stop your sacrifices. Knock off the scene. I don't want it anymore. In fact, you know what I wish you would all do is just lock the door and go home. Can you imagine? Please just visualize that for a minute. Just imagine our Lord Jesus who died for us while coming down here and saying for a moment, hey, by the way, folks, I'd prefer you all went home. You're wasting my time and yours. If we don't want to, we haven't been hit by the cross. If we think other things are more valuable than what he's done for us, we just don't get it. So don't let anybody Hebrews 10.25 you. What a waste. Are we here because we want to or not? God wants hearts. He doesn't want compulsion. He doesn't want your have to. He doesn't want, well, I guess so. Either it is the heart or it is is not. His victory is the reason why we worship. The reason we should want to be here is the victory that he has achieved. Because his dying and raising and ascending and conquering Satan, sin and death. And making it so that we can be as people should just stun us to such a degree. That what else do I want to do? Nothing's better. Nothing's better. What else could I do? I've got to sing to God. It's amazing what he's done. I need to talk to God. It's amazing what he's done. I want to remember the sacrifice. It's amazing what he's done. I want to learn from the word. It's amazing what he's done. It is a call for a victorious worship that leads to a victorious transformation. Notice what's described in verse 20. And on that day there shall be inscribed even on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts. So that all who sacrifice may come and take them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts that day. Do you see the picture? What a finale of the cross. He made everything holy so that you can enter right into the very worship center of God and be in his presence. You know, that wasn't the way it always was. The cross has taken down the barriers. And proclaimed those who belong to him as holy. You belong to God. You can worship him. You can enjoy a relationship with him. You can draw close to him. Your sins are not the barrier anymore. Your defilement and your filth are not the barrier anymore. You are holy to the Lord. That's what Peter is saying. As obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, be holy in all your conduct. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Here's God saying, I made you holy so that you can enjoy all the things that we've talked about. Don't go back. Don't go back. 
Do you like how Peter says it? I know we don't. Your former ignorance, don't go back to that. We don't like to be called ignorant. You didn't know. Don't go back to the, the silly things that are empty and worthless. Don't go back to the idols and the worthless shepherds that we read about in chapter 12. Don't go back to those things. Do you see what the offer is? Here's the offer. Jesus has accomplished a victorious exodus, setting people free, removing barriers. What a great way to picture a removing of a barrier. If you think dividing a sea is cool, imagine splitting a mountain in half. The obstacles are removed. That's the image. Nothing could stand in the way of God making a way for his people. He blows the mountain in two. And by making this victorious exodus, he has established his victorious reign. Ruler over heaven and earth, taking his rightful place. Not so that you would be miserable as, as, as he rules as a king. But that so you would worship and walk worthy of the calling. That's what chapter 14 is getting at. Is trying to just strike us with the picture of setting a people free. Striking down the enemies so that you could enjoy the victorious call. And as you enjoy that calling, it would so transform your heart that you'd want to worship and you'd want to be holy because God is holy. That's the life that God puts forward to his people. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, what an amazing image you give. Lord, you're always trying to convince us about your power, convince us of your care, and convince us of your love. Lord, we see in this chapter the great power that you have over your enemies. And Lord, we see that you have conquered everything that stood in our way. Thank you for conquering sin and death, conquering Satan, conquering every obstacle that could keep us from you so that we could enter into your presence as the holy people of God who are fit to worship you. Lord, I pray that you would always hold our hearts in awe of all that you've done. And Lord, forgive us for when our worship has been compulsory, where we have not come here to worship out of the heart, but simply out of obligation. Lord, forgive us for when we have returned to our former ignorance and are not living holy lives, but returned to sin, our idols, worthless shepherds that lead us away from you. And Lord, thank you for your conquering reign so that those sins could be forgiven. That as we foolishly wander away from you, that you could forgive us and bring us back to you. Lord, thank you for being our God. Thank you for making us his people. And Lord, we pray that we would live under your son in such a way that we would be proper citizens. That we would live under his rule as truly devoted followers of you. 
Lord, thank you for taking us from a place where we do not deserve any kind of favor, but rather we deserve judgment for all of our sins and transferring us to this wonderful place where we can stand before you clean and whole, where we can stand before you as your children. We pray that we would live up to the glorious calling that you have given to us. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to sing an invitation song, and we invite you to come to Jesus. I hope that will uh, encourage you to go back to a book like Zechariah, a book that is often not touched. (laughs) It's a scary book with all of those images, and allow you to go back and see some of those details and pieces and see the beauty of what God is trying to accomplish for you. He wants your heart. He loves you so much and hopes that you are so moved by what he's done that you will want to follow him and live for him. Our invitation this morning is to give you that chance. If you want to give him your life today, turning away from your sins, confessing Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, the Son of God, who came to this world and died for your sins, be immersed in water, to have your sins washed away because the fountain is open. And it's flowing all directions, and it's not diminished, and it's there for you if you're willing to come. Won't you come and do that now while we stand and while we sing?